Amen, amen. You can have a seat. As you take a seat, go ahead and uh, take your Bibles out if you have them and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there on the seat back in front of you. And in the, in the front of it, as a table of contents, and you can find John there. We've been in John in a series called Life over the past weeks. Starting next week, we're going to be going to our Christmas series, so this is the last time we'll be in John until the first of the year again. Last week, we were in the first 21 verses of John chapter 10, talking about the good shepherd, and we're going to finish off the rest of this chapter today in what I think, and what I think you'll see is one of the greatest promises that is given to Christians in this passage, all right? So John chapter seven, or sorry, John chapter 10. Uh, we're gonna start in verse 22, and we're gonna start with a tricky question, a tricky question. It says this, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews, or the Jewish leaders here, gathered around him, and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. All right, verse, verse 22, the Feast of Dedication. What is that? That's Hanukkah. That's the Festival of Lights. We're actually in the midst of Hanukkah right now. Uh, this feast, is, it's not prescribed in the Mosaic Law. It came later. It came during the intertestamental period. When was that? That's the blank page that you have between the Old Testament and the New Testament in your Bible that represents 400 years, okay? And the Feast of Dedication was this eight-day celebration that commemorates the Jewish victory over the Syrians that were led by Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who oppressed Israel and he desecrated the temple with pagan worship. And this man named Judas Maccabeus, he leads this successful revolt that takes back the temple and then they rededicate it on, in 164 BC. And it was celebrated in December, which is why it's listed here because this tells us it's been about two months since the Feast of Booths. And then look there in verse 23, Jesus is in the temple. Okay, and these Jewish leaders, they come and it says they gathered around him. This, this word could also be translated, they surrounded him or they encircled him. Okay, so don't picture this like some guys sitting at the feet of their teacher. That's not what's happening here. They are aggressively questioning him. And they're like, how long will you keep us in suspense? Another way of saying it could be, how long will you keep on annoying us, Jesus? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Here's the problem. They don't actually want more answers here. They want him to repeat publicly his claim so that they can have more warrant to kill him. And now he gives them a bold answer. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them and he said, I told you <laughs> and you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 25, he says, I 
told you already, which is the truth. They've already plotted and tried to kill him twice before this. We see it in chapter 5, verse 18, and chapter 8, verse 59. The problem here isn't that they need more information. The problem is their unbelief. And notice in verse 25, all the responsibility of their unbelief rests on them. He says, I told you, and you, you do not believe. And then after that, he's like, even, even if I haven't told you plainly, okay, my works, the works that he says are done in the Father's name, which by the way, that doesn't mean he just says the Father's name when he does these miracles that he's been working. It means that he does them in the authority and according to the will of the Father. So he's like, the works that I do in the Father's name those should clearly demonstrate to you who I am, right? In verse 21, up from the passage last week, it says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And the answer to that is no. He's like, you should be able to tell by my works. But verse 26, he says, though, but ultimately, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That's why. In this passage, we're gonna see once again the incredible paradox of the sovereignty of God and salvation and human responsibility. Uh, a paradox is something that um, seems at first glance to be contradictory, but upon further investigation, you find that it's not and that it's actually true. So at the Christmas season, I would look at that as chocolate-covered pretzels. Okay, salty, sweet, right? The answer is yes. Dark chocolate covered, not white. Ugh, waste of calories. <laughs> Paradox, something that seems to be contradictory, but upon investigation actually is not, okay? That's God's sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation. Let's, let's look at how. Here's what we know. Look at verse 26. We know this. God is absolutely sovereign over our salvation, period. He pursues us when we're not pursuing him. He calls us. He opens our blind eyes so that we can see the truth about him and the reality of our sin and our desperate need for a savior. And we believe he is sovereign. That's why he can say, you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. I must call you, okay? But here's also what we know there in verse 27. We are responsible. We're responsible to hear, to hear his voice, to hear the good news about him, to believe him, and to follow him. And you're like, Nate, I can't reconcile those things those two things together. That's okay. You're not supposed to. It's a mystery of God-sized proportion. What we are supposed to do is we are supposed to believe. That's our role. He has told us the truth about him. He has revealed to us exactly who he is and what we are supposed to do and what's involved with it. And we cling to the glorious realities that he is absolutely absolutely sovereign in salvation, and yet we must believe. He keeps going um, with this bold answer into this glorious promise here in verse 27 and 28. Look at that. He says, my sheep hear my voice, 
and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. One of the most remarkable passages of hope for the Christian life. Track with this here in verse 28. Look at this. I'm gonna look at this word by word. Look, I, I, Jesus does this. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. I give, I, I give. This is a, it's a gift. It's not wages for something that you have done. It's not deserved. It's free. You can't lose what you do not earn. And he says he will not take it back. I give it to you. I give them, my sheep, the ones that hear my voice, I give them eternal life, eternal life in the future and eternal life now. That's the gift. And what? It says they will never perish. When we talk, say this word perish here, biblically, don't think of this just like a physical death, okay? Apart from Jesus' return, we are all gonna die physically here in this world because of the curse of sin, okay? When this says you will never perish, this is talking about eternal destruction. This is talking about being separated from God's presence for all of eternity. You will not perish. You will not be separated from him. You will not find yourself in hell in eternity. You will be saved. You will have eternal life uh, and they will never perish. A a really woodenly literal translation of this would be uh, they will not perish forever. Okay, there's like this double knot that's happening in here. It's like, you will never, ever, ever perish. No, never, right? And look what, look what he, uh, we, uh, I thought about this. I thought about this first service. I'm gonna say it again. We always tell our kids, always, see there, I did it. I'm about to do what I said, don't do. We tell our kids, we're like, don't make always and never statements. Not with mom and dad and not with each other. They're just going to get you further in trouble. We say the same thing in marriage counseling, so maybe you needed to hear that this morning. Don't make always and never statements. They are typically unfounded, unprovable, and always unhelpful. Okay? Make make accurate statements. (laughs) Accurate statements. Men, this will keep you out of trouble. All right? It will lead to... Always and never statements will lead to increased fighting, right? That is, unless it's accurate (laughs) and you can actually back it up. And here is what God is saying is, I can back it up. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Look at these next words. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Remember from last week, who does the snatching and the scattering? It's the wolves. No wolf will be able to take you out of my hand. When, when scripture talks about your, your hand, it's speaking about where your power is, where your strength is. This is incredible. Incredible, and then he keeps he keeps going, and he says, "My father, in verse twenty nine, who has given them to me, my father is greater than all, 
and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are, are one. That, look at what he's saying. He's like, listen, listen. I give eternal life to my sheep, to those who believe in me. And they are now in my hand. And no one is able to take them from my hand. Not only that, my father gave them to me. And my father is, is greater than all. He is stronger than all. And no one is able to take them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So do you see this? He's like, I've got a grip on you. The father's got a grip on you. Oh yeah, we have a grip on you. This, this divine double grip of God. And look at this incredible truth down here in verse 29. My father is greater than all. God is stronger. I, uh, sometimes in our attempts, I think, to dig deeper into the knowledge of God and his word, I think sometimes we forget to revel in the simplest clearest truths. God is greater. We teach our kids that, don't we? God is bigger than the boogeyman. You are safe in his arms. He will protect you. He's got you. He is more powerful than what? Than anything. Than Everything, right? That is not a truth meant to be left in a children's Bible. That is a truth that we are meant to cling to for all of our lives. He is more powerful. He is greater than anything you are facing in your life right now. He is bigger and stronger and greater than your enemies. He is greater than that circumstance that you're facing. He is more powerful than that disease. He is greater. Cling to that truth. Jesus uses that clear, simple truth to make his argument here that not only are you in his grip, but you are in the Father's grip. And now we grip you together. The triune God has a hold of you. Our salvation, our assurance, it doesn't rest in our ability to hang on to him. It rests in his power and in his promise to keep us. He's like, I will not abandon you to the wolves. I won't be like the hired hand from last week and run off when danger comes. I will not run. I will lay down my life for you. I've got you, and I will give you eternal life. Remember, remember eternal life in the Gospel of John, it has these kind of two realities. It has this kind of already and not yetness to it. It has a future reality, right? We will live eternally with the Lord. We will never be separated with him in the next life. But it also has meaning for the life that we're currently in. If you look back in chapter 10, the verse 10 from last week, he says, I came, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. What does abundant life look like, Nate? Well, look down to verse 14 and he tells us, he says, I'm the good shepherd. 
I know my own. My own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. There's this mutual knowledge that's happening here in this intimately unique relationship that we have with Jesus Christ in this life. So I th- when we think often of eternal life, we always think of it as something that's out there, that's just in the future. And we even do that with with this promise. You're like, Nate, I know. I know later when the Lord returns and he gathers all of those to himself who are his children and he separates those who aren't, I know that I will never perish. I know that I won't be abandoned. I know that I won't be separated from the Lord to destruction. But listen to me. This is applicable not just for the future realities of eternal life. This is applicable applicable now as you have life abundantly with him. Nothing can separate you from him. No one can separate you from the love of God. No one and nothing has the capabilities in and of themselves of tearing you away from relationship with him. I always think of Romans chapter 8 when I think of this truth. In the last part of Romans chapter eight, it's, it's reveling in this truth and it's this worshipful, tremendous way to end this chapter. It says this, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can accuse God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Christ Jesus is the one who was raised. Christ Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes into all the things that we would be tempted to think that could. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's the answer to that question. No. In all these things, despite... All of these things, we are more than conquerors. We have victory through him who loved us. And here he goes. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever, 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 no, never, forever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to me. He's got you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can know. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. You can know in any circumstance that you currently face in your life right now, you can know he's 
got you. You are in his hand. The divine, unfathomable, unbreakable grip of our triune God who will be with you now and forever. Speak that truth into those moments of regret that you have in your life. Speak that truth into your loneliness, into your doubt, into your fears, into your frustrations, into your pain. Remember that he has you, your good father, and then, and then choose to listen to him and to follow him and to believe again, moment by moment and day by day. Look, look back at verse 30 again. We've got to talk about this. We see here a divine identity. He takes this line of reasoning all the way to the point where verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. We are one. He's not saying here that they are one person. How do we know that? Because he says, I and the Father, two persons. What is he saying? We are one God, one in being, one in essence, one in will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, three distinct persons, one God, You're like, well, how do we know that that's what he's saying, that that's how that's supposed to be understood? Well, look at verse 31. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, picked up stones again to stone him. Okay, so they get what he's saying. They understand. Picture this. They're in the temple. They're in the temple. They've surrounded Jesus. He's he's teaching them. He's talking to them. He's answering their questions that they really don't want answers to. And he answers it with this incredible divine truth. And they pick up not pebbles to throw them at him. They pick up stones with the intent that they are going to beat him until he dies. And what's he do? Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them and he said, I have shown you many Good works. Good here, remember, it's uh, both morally pure and beautiful. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I love this. I love when Jesus uses sarcasm to teach. He's like, I've done all these beautiful things from the Father. Here, which of them are you going to stone me for? Are you going to stone me for healing the paralyzed boy? Are, are you going to stone me for feeding the 5,000 or almost 20,000 we found out later? Are you, you going to stone me for opening the blind man's eyes that we saw a couple weeks ago? Or is, that, is that what you're going to stone me for? Are you going to stone me for turning water to wine? Come on, no one's mad about that. Like, what is it you're going to stone me for? In verse 33, they tell him, the Jews answered and they said, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Notice a couple things here first in this verse. Notice they point out he is a man. Why is that important? Well, because if anyone tries to tell us today that Jesus wasn't a man, do you realize they actually stand in opposition to the firsthand witnesses who were, by the way, his enemies, so his enemies recognize that he's a human being, okay? But not only that, 
Look there after that. Notice that they understand precisely who he's claiming to be. You make yourself or you claim to be God. That's important because similarly, right? If anyone today, and we have many that would tell us this, and they, they tell us that Jesus never claimed to be God. If you hear that, that person is actually standing in opposition to the firsthand witnesses, to his enemies who very clearly understand what he's claiming to be because they actually pick up rocks in order to stone him because of it. They've just messed up one thing and one thing only. Look there. They said, you being a man, make yourself God. They've reversed the order. He wasn't a man making himself to be God. He was God who became man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. The incarnation, John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's who he is. Keep going. Verse 34, see here, I think we're going to see some more teaching sarcasm by Jesus. Jesus answered them and he said, is it not written in the law, I said, you are God's? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture can't be broken, do you say of him of whom the father consecrated and sent into the world your blasphemy? Because I I said, I'm the son of God. What's he doing here? Okay, this is from Psalm 82, all right? Maybe you can go read that later. In Psalm 82, God is addressing these earthly leaders, these earthly judges. And he says this in verse six. He says, you are gods, little g, gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and you shall fall like any prince. So it's what's happening is these earthly, merely human judges have been entrusted by God as his representative. They're supposed to exercise authority justly on earth. Do justice, love mercy. And he's saying instead is what they've done is they've judged unjustly. They've shown partiality to the wicked rather than the needy and oppressed them. Okay, and so God in the Old Testament calls these earthly judges little g gods, Elohim, because they represent God himself. Okay, so the reasoning goes something like this is what Jesus is doing. He's like, scripture cannot be broken. Okay, again, if you ever wondered what Jesus's view of the Old Testament scriptures was, that's it. Scripture can't be broken. It can't be altered. It can't be changed. It's authoritative. It's true. It's without error. And, and his enemies agree with him. Okay, so he's like, all right, since we all agree on that, if in the Old Testament, God calls these human beings little g gods, and they're just humans, they're gonna die. Don't you think the unique one, the one that was consecrated by the Father and sent the Messiah, how much more should he be called the Son of of God. See, he's going back to what they believe and where they believe it rightly, and he's saying you're not even logically considering here what's in front of you and connecting the dots to, to who I am. Verse 37 and 38 here now we're going to see we're going to see this final invitation that Jesus is going to go into with these religious leaders. It says this If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, 
even though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Uh, suppose you're here and you're, you really still are struggling between you know, the sovereignty of God and salvation and yet human responsibility. One of the things you might be asking is, what do I do? What do I do, Nate, with my parent, with my friend, with my coworker who doesn't know Jesus and I want them to know them? Do, do, I just, do I just sit back and fold my hands and be like, you know, hey, if they're called, God will do it. No, why not? Because that's not even what Jesus himself models for us. I mean, here is what he's doing is he's appealing one last time to these religious leaders before he's gonna go away and before he sees them. When he sees the religious leaders again, it's gonna be at his trial. And so this last time, what's he do? He holds out to them this opportunity to believe. This last opportunity that he puts in front of them, how gracious and how merciful of him. And that's exactly what we're called to do too. We are meant to share the gospel with people, the good news about Jesus. We're meant to hold out God's truth to them to call them to repentance and faith while trusting God to do what only he can do, which is save them. If you remember back at the beginning of the John series, we issued a challenge. We said, uh, hey, would you, would you be praying for someone in your sphere of influence that you know who doesn't yet know Jesus as Savior. And if you've forgotten to do that, do that right now between you and the Lord. Just give that person to him again, okay? Here's what I'd like us to do now. I'd like us to consider this. Between now and Christmas, do we need to go and make an appeal to that person to follow Jesus? Do do we need to step out and make either the first appeal, because maybe we never have, or maybe we've appealed to them and we've invited them to this, but we need to do it again. I'd like us to consider, should I do that in the next couple weeks? Do, should I go winsomely and gently and prayerfully to this person who I love and care for and say, I love you. And I need to share with you the greatest news ever. Jesus died to save you from your sins. And if you will trust him, if you will trust him, he will forgive you and he will save you and he will give you a new life now and forever. And in the Christmas season, I don't want to pass up this opportunity to come to you and to tell you what the greatest gift is that we actually celebrate at this time of year. Look at these last verses and let's finish this, finish this up. Verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him so they don't listen. They don't take the invitation, but he escaped from their hands. We're not sure how, verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to a place 
where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. He stays there for about three months. There's about three months until uh, he's crucified. Verse 41, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man is true, and here's the hope. Here's the hope that we cling to, and many believed in him there. Even though the religious leaders still are refusing to believe, others are coming to him in faith. Here's how we close this. What a great time of year to stop and to meditate on the glorious truths of who our Savior is and our salvation in him. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He's one with the Father. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, his sheep. And he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. And listen to me, if you're here and a believer, no one, no one and nothing can ever, 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 no ever, forever take you out of his hand. And you can enjoy life to its fullest now in relationship with him. And, and one day you will enjoy life perfectly perfectly united with him in eternity. That's worth meditating on this Christmas. And I'll just say, that's worth believing this Christmas also. Uh, maybe you're here, maybe you're here with us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You've never placed your trust in him for salvation. This is my opportunity to appeal to you and to tell you that you, just like me, are a sinner. And your sin has separated you from a holy God. And that's, that's the bad news. Because of your sin, you will face the just wrath of God one day with nothing between you and him. The good news, though, is this. Jesus lived. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I are incapable of living. And he died on the cross in our place to pay our penalty to save us from our sins. And then to demonstrate exactly who he was, he rose from the dead on the third day in victory over sin and death and hell and Satan. And now he says, if you will trust me, if you will trust me for salvation, if you will say nothing in this life will satisfy or save me, not myself nor nothing else, you are it, Lord, and you place your trust in him for salvation, he will save you and he will draw near to you and he will never leave you and you will be with him, not only in this life, for, for, for all of eternity. And he will give you meaning and purpose and significance in relationship with him that you cannot have otherwise. And you as his sheep will get the joy of following the good shepherd for all of your days along with us. So I say to you, please today, place your trust in him. Believe who he is and what he offers you. And he says, and I will give you eternal life. And no one will take you out of my hand. Oh, church, revel in that this Christmas season. Father, oh, we are so grateful, Lord. You 
are good. We recognize we deserve nothing from you, and yet you've given us everything, Lord. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for your finished work in your life, death, and resurrection, Lord. May we remember and worship you in that truth this season, today. Lord, there are many people here who are facing many different difficult situations and circumstances in their life right now. Would you help them by your spirit in them to cling to the truth that you are greater and that you are with them, that you've got them in this? Would you give them a peace like never before and endure them through these difficult times? Lord, if there's people here who don't yet know you, would you, would you right now open their eyes to see your beauty? To see you calling them? To see the joy that comes in relationship with you despite the circumstances that we face in this world and in our lives? to see their need for a savior and that salvation is only found in you, Lord. And I pray, I pray that they wouldn't leave here today without crying out to you to save them. Lord, we love you, but we love you only because you first loved us. You are precious in your name. Amen.